Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll be a little bit here and there today, but that'll be one spot. And uh, as, I, uh, as we get ready for this morning's message, I do want to recognize uh, Michael and Janina and their family that are in town right now, the Vasquez family. Give them a round of applause. We have, uh, let's see, Joshua, Taylor, Caleb, and Joey as well. It's good to have you guys back from the land down under. Is it Tasmania? Now, where is Tasmania? Does anybody know where Tasmania is? A few of us. Where is Tasmania? The most southeast state of Australia, and it's an island. Do you like it down there? Do you want us to all join you down there? We miss you guys. We have missed you so much. It is really good to see you. For those of you that don't know Michael and Janina and their beautiful family, uh, they came here as, from uh, Camp Pendleton. Michael was a Marine, and, uh, and they came as a Marine family to our church, blessed us with a few years of their presence and their, their joy and their energy for the Lord. And, uh, and then they made that decision to move all the way to Tasmania. And we shed a few tears, but we're, we're glad you're here just for a short time visiting in the States. It's very nice to have you. Also want to make mention uh, of the fact that uh, I'm hearing good news from uh, Christina that gallbladder surgery might not be uh, in her future. She's feeling much better right now. So let's give uh, the Lord a shout for that. Christina, I, we don't have the full story, but you're feeling better? Jury's still out, but we're praying for the Lord to just heal and to bring uh, relief because, man, I think we've had a few gallbladder surgeries in this church already, so we don't need any more. Well, let's, uh, let, let me, let's all stand and let me, uh, let me open us up a word of prayer. Let's stand together and let's go to the Lord and bow our heads to him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now as your people. We love you because you first loved us. We are your people because you created us. We are your sheep, and you, Lord, are our shepherd, and we just want to follow you. And you've given us your word to do that, Lord, and so help us to read it and to know it and to walk in it. Lord, there's going to be a lot of other uh, paths to follow in this life. The world has a very, very giant path. It's a wide road. You've called us to a narrow road. But you've also not just called us to truth, Lord, you've called us to show grace and mercy like your son Jesus showed to us. So as we walk that narrow road, that narrow road of truth. Help us to always show grace, mercy, and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I thought long and hard about um, what um, churches did in uh, various uh, times of American history. I wondered what happened on Sunday April 23, 1775, four days after the Americans and the British went to war in the Battle of Lexington and Concord. 
a battle that began the American Revolution. I wonder what happened four days later after that battle on Sunday morning in pulpits across this nation. I wonder what happened on March 8, 1857, two days after the Dred Scott decision, when American Christians gathered in churches and pastors had to explain to their people why the Supreme Court in 1857 ruled that African Americans were less than human. I wonder what pastors said two days after Confederate soldiers fired on Fort Sumter. Civil War began on a Friday. I wonder what happened two days later in pulpits nationwide. I wonder what happened at Sunday evening service when on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, America was attacked by Japan at Pearl Harbor. I wonder what pastors said six days later on January 28, 1973, six days following the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion nationwide. And I think, though I wasn't alive for any of these things, some of you were there for at least two of, two of these, I think that the issues of the day were addressed. I don't think that pastors and churches across this great land went to their pulpits and said, hey, uh, never mind what just happened, we're going to ignore it and move on. No, I think that uh, it is incumbent upon places of worship and upon myself as a pastor to speak and to address the issues of the day, even when they're sensitive, even when uh, they're unpopular, even when they spark great emotion and opinion and even action. I think the Bible and I think the Lord would have us address the issue in our day. And that is, how are we going to respond to gay marriage? Today's message, responding to gay marriage. Responding to gay marriage. I've got an image there. That's not a a Photoshopped image, actually. Uh, that's an image from uh, Friday evening in, uh, at the White House. Uh, that was a representation of the uh, gay pride flag, which uh, pr- our president saw fit to uh, display in lights in front of the people's house. I want to ask a very simple question. Uh, what happened on Friday? What happened on Friday? And, and I, I invite, I, I, Tom and I spoke briefly, we invite the junior high and high school to join us today. Uh, Tom would have addressed this matter in the barn. We thought it best that we address this as a whole family. So youth, junior high, high school, you're here with us today and you can learn a lot today too. What happened on Friday? First thing I want to say is this, on the basis of the Equal Protection Clause, of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the Supreme Court of the United States has declared marriage to be a genderless institution. So we have the 14th Amendment. I'm, I'm no history buff. David Bennett can educate you on the 14th Amendment. But there's a clause in the 14th Amendment which provides uh, rights, equal protection rights to Americans of all uh, 
shapes and sizes and different stripes. And based on this 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 decision that marriage was to be a genderless institution. Therefore, number two, therefore, now, same-sex persons, same-sex persons will now be eligible to marry under U.S. law. This decision was based on the, the 14th Amendment. I encourage you to go read it. Look it up, read it, be familiar with it, understand what it says. We should know our history. We should know our U.S. Constitution. Number three, it remains unclear just how much further the court will expand the definition of marriage to accommodate other groups that are knocking at its door. The reason I say that is because of what was written in the minority opinion uh, objecting to this decision. There were five justices who voted in favor of gay marriage to say that gay marriage is the law of the land from California to New York across this great plain. Gay marriage is available to all. And and the minority responded, and um, particularly Chief Justice John Roberts, I read his dissent, and he had a very fascinating statement in his dissent. He said that the majority arbitrarily puts the, the number two in their decision. In other words, it's a genderless institution, so it's no longer an institution based on, on uh, what gender you are, but, but it's still a de- a, 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 an institution where there's two people involved. And time and again, they insert two, they insert two, they insert two, and Chief Justice John Roberts asked the question, why are they arbitrarily inserting two if they are arbitrarily removing gender from the equation? Suffice to say, Roberts went on to argue that all of their arguments in favor of gay marriage, in which the number two was found, could be substituted for the number three or four or any other number, and the rationale of the majority would still hold. It remains unclear how much further the court will expand the definition of marriage. Polygamy, polyamorous relationships, incestuous relationships, adult child, God forbid. But we have opened up a very unique door in American history. And the minority justices saw it as clear as day. Four, it remains unclear how the courts will rule when the free exercise of religion, that is the First Amendment, runs into the new so-called constitutional right of same-sex marriage. First Amendment, freedom of speech. Also in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so what we're saying here is that it remains unclear. It's foggy. What's going to happen when the 14th Amendment, which apparently grants same-sex marriage, collides with the First Amendment in which men and women across this nation exercise their religious viewpoint, exercise their faith, make statements about it, take action about it, prohibit action about it, and so on and so forth. It remains unclear how the courts will rule when the free exercise of religion, the First Amendment, runs into the new so-called constitutional right of same-sex marriage when the First and the Fourteenth collide. 
when there arise people of faith who oppose same-sex marriage, in word or in action, it remains to be seen what the courts will do against such religious business owners, religious colleges, nonprofits, even churches and pastors. I'm going to give you a few examples. You might think I'm being uh, uh, hyperbolic, I'm told. I will show you why I'm not. Number one, should a Muslim butcher be required by law to prepare pork products? How will the courts rule on that? (laughs) Say I bring my pork to the butcher. I want this prepared now. No, it's against my religion. How will the court rule? Another example. Should a Jewish caterer be required by law to cater a neo-Nazi event? Should they be required by law to cater that event? Three. Should a Catholic hospital be required by law to provide abortions? Currently, they're not. There's some, except, there's some uh, exceptions granted currently to Catholic hospitals. In fact, I had a great conversation with Dr. Lee States about that, about some of the, the history of that and where, where it's going forward. Might that happen in the future? Another one. Should an African-American artist be required by law to paint a hero of the Confederate Army? The Confederate flag is in prime view today. What if they were uh, asked by an organization to paint a hero of the Confederate Army and they declined? Could they do that? Another one. Could a, should a Jehovah's Witness be required by law to have a blood transfusion? This is a historic argument that's gone back years now. In fact, there have been instances in which uh, this is a Jehovah's Witness, which uh, according to their religion, uh, they're not to have blood transfusions. And in some cases, states have, uh, have forcibly taken their children and given them blood transfusions for, for their health. Finally, should a homosexual t-shirt maker be required by law to create a one-man, one-woman marriage shirt. Let's say a pro-family organization goes to a homosexual business owner who makes T-shirts and says, we want a one-man, one-woman T-shirt. You need to make it for us. Should, should the 14th Amendment require that homosexual business owner to make that T-shirt? Now we read all these and we go, come on, Neil. This is, this is getting kind of ridiculous, right? Come on, Pastor. You're being ridiculous. And you know what? To some degree, I am. In fact, uh, the American people agree that this is a little ridiculous. Erasmussen did a poll recently, and they asked, they asked a very simple question in the poll. They said, uh, uh, 85% of Americans agree that deeply held beliefs, religious or otherwise, deeply held beliefs deserve to be respected and accommodated even in the public marketplace. 85% of Americans, not just religious Americans, all Americans agree that when it's a deeply held belief, religious or otherwise, there should be accommodations made for it in the marketplace. We look at all these examples and we go, come on, let's, let's be cool. Let's, let's, uh, let's not forcibly make people do things they don't want to do. Ah, but I've neglected to indicate a faith group up here. Another faith group. So let's put one more faith group up there. Put them up there. Should a Christian photographer be required by law to shoot a same-sex wedding? Oh, wait a minute. Now, now, pastor, you've really gone too far. Come on now. Well, of course they should. Of course they should. So says politicians. So says the media. So says governments across this land. 
We bend over backwards to accommodate the preferences of other religious groups, other races, those of different sexual orientation. But when it comes to a heterosexual, evangelical Christian, something happens, doesn't it? Suddenly, the world is up in arms. How dare you not photograph that wedding? How dare you? Something strange happens, actually. It's almost like there's some unseen spiritual force at work that causes people's minds to suddenly shift whenever this conversation pertains to a follower of Jesus Christ. 85% of Americans would agree to make accommodations for everyone else, but put this on the board and the percentage changes, and it changes drastically. We're told not to worry, though. We're told not to worry. The same five justices who approved same-sex marriage assured us, they assured us, in their majority opinion, that the First Amendment rights of every American would be protected. You can forgive me for not having much confidence in their, in their assurance. For it was just last year that this same Supreme Court denied to hear the appeal of Elaine Huguenin, of Elaine Photography. This is Elaine Huguenin of New Mexico. She's a evangelical Christian. A few years ago, an openly lesbian couple walked into her storefront, asked that she photograph their wedding. She very politely refused, citing her religion, religion as a reason why she could not participate in a same-sex marriage ceremony in that way. That same-sex couple didn't take too kindly to that denial. They took it all the way to the New Mexico Supreme Court, which found Elaine guilty of sexual orientation discrimination, in which she was ordered to pay a fine and attorney's fees for the case. Her attorneys, the Alliance Defending Freedom, appealed to the United States Supreme Court, the same court that on Friday told you and me, don't worry, don't worry, people of faith, we got your back, we will protect your First Amendment rights, despite our ruling, your First Amendment rights will be protected. The same Supreme Court that told you and I that two days ago looked her in the eye a year ago and said, nope. We're not going to hear that case. Denied. We're not even going to listen to it. Not even going to consider it. We're going to let the decision of the Supreme Court of New Mexico stand. And you need to pay that fine. And you need to pay those attorney's fees. And your business is now in deep trouble. Just one year ago, one year ago, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to tell America just what would happen when the First and the Fourteenth Amendment collided. And they punted. Oh, pastor, give it up. It's over. Same-sex marriage is the law of the land. Get in line, or else you'll be on the wrong side of history. Besides, there are more important things to focus on. You're right. There are definitely more important things to focus on. And we won't neglect those things. But let me be very clear. Some may think we're on the wrong side of history, 
Well, we ought to be concerned about history. It should concern you and I that no ancient civilization has survived that has openly affirmed homosexual expression. Not ancient Greece, not ancient Rome, nor any civilization has survived once that culture embraced openly homosexual expression. Now, was that the primary cause of Greece's demise? No. Was it the primary cause of Rome's demise? No. But if we're talking history, maybe it's relevant. Was it a factor? Was it a factor in the demise of civilizations down through history? Well, my faith and my scriptures that I hold dear lead me to believe so. More important than history is his story, God's story. And this book, this book that we hold in our hand, it is his word, the very word of God. And it tells a story about this present crisis. He has something to say about this present crisis. And before you and I render opinion on same-sex marriage, you would be wise to read it and to listen to what his story has to say about it. I want to mention six things today. Six ways. Six things that the Lord is asking us to do on your outline there. What does the Lord ask of us now in light of the Supreme Court decision that gay marriage is legal across this land? What does the Lord ask us to do in responding to this? Number one, very plainly, let Scripture inform your view of homosexual expression. Let Scripture inform your view of homosexual expression. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. And uh, there's some beautiful, uh, beautiful stories of, uh, of what he did in American history. And then you look at his religion and you realize what he did and it's kind of mind-boggling. Thomas Jefferson would literally, he would take a razor and he would cut out portions of God's word from his Bible and he would paste it onto another page. What he was cutting out were the pages that he liked. As a deist, Thomas Jefferson believed that God was transcendent. He was, he was other. He was outside uh, of space and time. He was outside of, uh, of interest in all things earthly. And so Thomas Jefferson, because he believed God was so remote and so distant, he believed that all the supernatural acts upon this earth could not have been. He looked at the miracles of Jesus in the Bible. As he read the Gospels, he looked at the miracles and he said, these could not have happened because that's not what God does. And so he would take out the pieces of Scripture that he liked and would paste it there and he would leave the rest in the Word of God that he didn't like and he closed the book, and he let it go. Look up the Jefferson Bible. You'll read a very unique version of the Bible. He cherry-picked, Thomas Jefferson cherry-picked Scripture to fit his own preconceived ideas of what it was supposed to say. If you and I want to cherry-pick the Word of God, go right ahead. But you will do so at your own peril. If you want to take a position on same-sex marriage, before consulting Scripture, go right ahead, but you do so at your own peril. For God does not hold it lightly when we add or remove 
things from his word. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, God says, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, which the Lord your God has commanded you. Revelation 22, the apostle John warns through the words of Christ, he warns not to add or to take away from the writing of that prophecy. A thoughtful Christian will read the word of God before speaking. A thoughtful Christian will meditate on the word of God before expressing an opinion on same-sex marriage. So what does the word of God say? Not listed here above, but on your outline below, I give you three points. I'm not going to go over all those scriptures. I'm going to let you do it because it's your job too. Three points, simple points, straightforward points. I'm reading, I'm at, I'm approaching it with a very plain reading of the text. A lot of people will read it very, very complicated, nuanced ways. It's remarkable the ways they'll read these texts. But from a very plain and straightforward reading of God's word, first, according to Genesis 19, Leviticus 20, and Jude 7, I want to say this. Homosexual, homosexual expression, it is wicked to act on one's homosexual desires. Write that down. It is wicked to act on homosexual desires. You can look this up at home, these scriptures. See for yourself. Read it plainly. Secondly, according to Romans 1, this one I do want to read. Romans 1, beginning in verse 26. I had you open there. Romans 1, beginning in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heir, which was due. On your outline, homosexual lust and relations are contrary to nature. Homosexual lust and relations are contrary to to nature, to God's order. Third and finally, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, you can read it on your own, plainly says this, practicing homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practicing homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to emphasize practicing there. I also want to draw attention to the word inherit. Circle that word. That word has a lot of different connotations. It's not the same word as enter the kingdom. It's a key word, inherit the kingdom. That is to say, having a rich, having an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. Am I suggesting from this pulpit that a homosexual can never go to heaven? No. That is not what I'm suggesting. I am suggesting a, a person who is a homosexual and actively practices on their desires will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is to say they will not gain a rich and abundant entrance into God's kingdom on the last day. If they openly and, defi and, de and defiantly live in such a way that defies God's law, they will reap consequences for that on this earth and in the life to come, they will miss out on a great opportunity to have received reward an opportunity in the kingdom of God. There will be preachers out there that, uh, that go so far as to say 
a homosexual cannot enter heaven? I think they're dead wrong. For by grace you've been saved. Through faith it is the gift of God. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is by grace through faith. You don't need to check off a bunch of to-dos before you get into heaven. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future, and you will enter the kingdom of God. You won't be guaranteed an inheritance there, but you will enter the kingdom of God if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Having said that, I believe that active homosexual practice very often inhibits someone from believing. Because when they are actively involved in homosexual behavior, their eyes are so blinded and their bodies have been used in such awful and sinful ways that it is difficult for them to see clearly what is the truth. But, I'll say it again, we don't, God doesn't change us before the new birth. He changes us because we're born again. Amen? God doesn't change us before the new birth. <laughs> he changes us when we've been born again. He changes us when he puts his spirit within us because we believed in him by grace through faith in him. That's what can lead to transformation in a person's life. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. So we've said three things. It is wicked to act on one's homosexual desires. Homosexual lust and relations are contrary to nature. And practicing homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. I emphasize practicing. Notice up at the very top of this word here, uh, let scripture inform your view of homosexual expression. Why do I emphasize expression or practicing homosexuals? I'll tell you why. Because homosexual temptation is not a sin. It's not a sin. Homosexual temptation is not a sin. Men, your temptation to look at pornography is not a sin. It's a temptation. It's what you do with that that can lead to good or to evil. Jesus was tempted in all things yet was without sin. The temptation to act on one's homosexual desires is not sin. It's what you do with the temptation. And so there are many in this audience, I have no doubt, there are some in this audience who are sitting there going, I have on occasion homosexual tendencies and desires. I have on occasion, um, I... I experience homosexual temptation. I want to say to you as a pastor, as a minister of the word of God, that feeling that you have is not sin. That temptation that you have is not sin. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. And those of you who struggle with homosexual temptation, you know what you're to do with it? You're to go to the Lord in prayer just like any other temptation. You're to beg him for grace and mercy. You're to beg him to show you truth and goodness. You're to beg him for relief from this temptation and to press forward in holiness 
and sanctification. Your job, if you struggle with any kind of homosexual desire, is to be celibate before God, sanctified before him. Let scripture inform your view of homosexual expression, homosexual practice. We've said what that practice is in the eyes of God. In Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Friends, you've read it. You can go home and read it. Read it plainly, asking the Spirit to guide you, or you can read it very nuanced and you can manipulate it like some friends that I have that read the Word. I have discussions with them. It's it's The gymnastics that that they do with these texts are phenomenal. They turn them upside down and flip them around and get them to say whatever they want them to say so that they can avoid the conclusion that homosexual practice is detestable before God. It is. Read it plainly. Number two, what can we do? What does the Lord ask of us now? Number two, be gracious, be kind, be peaceable. Resist sinful anger. Please notice I added the word sinful before anger. That's important, more important than most of us realize. Let me explain. There's a new movie out, actually. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's called Inside Out. It's a kid's movie. Uh, some of you, who, how many of you have seen Inside Out? Raise your hands. Okay, a, f- a few of you, not all of you. It's a kid's movie, but I, in my opinion, it's also pretty good for adults. In fact, it's really good for adults. Inside Out is a story about five emotions that live inside the head of a little girl. Those emotions are joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger. They all have little personalities. They're all these little cartoons and they they live inside the head of this little girl and affect her actions and affect her life. Strangely, I've heard of legalistic Christians refusing to take their children to this movie. In fact, one Christian blogger that I've heard about went so far as to say that she wouldn't take her children to the movie because it glorifies anger and anger is not from God. What a foolish statement. Anger is not from God. Let me say something very plainly again. Emotions are from God. God has emotions. He made you and me in his image. We have emotions. They come from our creator. Let me go further. Emotions are never evil in and of themselves. Let me say that again. Emotions, like temptations, emotions are never evil in and of themselves. It's what we do with them that can lead to good or to evil. I hear parents tell their children all the time, don't be sad, don't be sad, don't be sad, or don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry. And I look at those parents and I go, what are you teaching your children? God has made us with the capacity to be sad. He's made us with the capacity to feel anger. God was sad. The Father was sad when his son was on the cross. Jesus Christ was angry when there were greedy merchants in the temple. God has made us with the capacity to feel sad, the capacity to feel anger, the capacity to feel disgust. You might remember a portion of scripture in which the Lord spits something out of his mouth. 
It's a church that he spits out of his mouth in Revelation 3 because he's disgusted by it, by its actions. Back to the word, back to number two here. Resist sinful anger. Anger is okay, friends. Sinful anger is not. That's why Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. I am angry. That's one of my emotions right now. I am angry that my nation has turned towards same-sex marriage. Another emotion I have is that I am disgusted by it. I'm disgusted that my nation calls evil good and good evil. I'm also saddened by it. And it brings me a measure of fear. But, while we experience all these emotions, and I want to affirm all of your emotions, while we experience these emotions, we must not allow our emotions to cause us to speak and to act in sinful ways. Be very careful, Christian, how you respond right now. Your witness is at stake. So be gracious, be kind, be peaceable. One man put it, we must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak with a Christian accent. And I encourage you, wherever you are, in dinner conversations, out in the marketplace, on social media, online, wherever you go, when you're addressing this matter, and any matter, but especially this one, do it with grace and kindness and love. You can have those emotions that you have. It's okay. I have them too. Go watch that movie. You'll learn all about those emotions. And sometimes you'll learn about bad expressions of those emotions. You can teach your kids about that. Quite frankly, I think a lot of adults need to learn that. It's okay to have the emotions. Keep them in check when it comes time to talking about this matter. Number three, don't panic or despair. This is simple, but I want to be plain. Don't panic or despair. Many of us are thinking, oh my goodness, what just happened to my nation? We are now strangers and exiles in American culture. And to that I ask, what's the big surprise? What's the big surprise? Isn't that the story of Scripture? That God's people would enjoy blessings for a time and then experience significant portions of exile and suffering? Read the Bible, friends. You and I have been lucky. Not lucky, we've been blessed. We've been blessed. We've lived in a nation for so long in which it's been pretty easy. Well, guess what? That easy is about to turn to a little bit more difficult and then it might get hard and then it might get really hard. I encourage you to add to your nightly readings Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, And when it gets really bad, I encourage you to read Lamentations and to find affinity with the people of God, with the real story of Scripture. Because we've had it easy for a long time. And if it gets difficult, all the more reason that we're going to be people of this book. Don't worry. Don't despair. Rest in the knowledge that God is in control. Jesus is on the throne. His kingdom is not weakened by man-made rulings that come and go. One I don't often quote, but a statement I highly respect. John MacArthur says this, Religious liberty is not promised 
in the Bible. Note that carefully. In America, the Church of Jesus Christ has enjoyed unprecedented freedom. This is changing. And the new normal may include persecution that is new to us. There has never been a more important time for gifted men to help lead the church by capably handling the sword of the Spirit. Amen. And that brings us to point four. Get ready to bless and love those who persecute you. On your outline, Luke 6, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Get ready for persecution, friends, because when the first and the 14th Amendment collide in this nation, the Supreme Court, they say they got your back. They told you last year they don't. They don't. And they won't. I can almost guarantee it. Persecution's coming. What do you do in the face of persecution? The Bible tells you what to do. Bless those who persecute you. Love them. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Prepare yourself. When you're persecuted in your business, you will be. When you're persecuted at school, you will be. When you're persecuted in your nonprofit, in your personal life, in school, in church, you will be. Be ready to respond with love and kindness. Overwhelm them by your response. Let them be perplexed that you would respond that way. Number five, so important to me, make your marriage beautiful in Christ. You know, one of the reasons we have same-sex marriage legalized today is because our marriages haven't looked very good. This is a critique of the Christian church that has been lax on the issue of marriage, that has been lax on the issue of cohabitation, that has been lax on the issue of adultery, that has been lax on the issue of pornography, that has been lax on matters of of when divorce is permissible and when it is not permissible. Meditate on what the Bible has to say about marriage. Read good Christian books on marriage. Attend conferences on marriage. In your outline, there's a save the date for a marriage conference, October 9 and 10. I want all of you to go. It's going to be a great conference, October 9 and 10. Dr. Emerson Egeritz is coming to town, and he'll be uh, just down the street in San Juan Capistrano at a church there. We're going to participate. We're going to be a part of that. Get counseling. You know that good, good marriages need counseling. Casey and I went to a, um, where are you, honey? There you are. <laughs> we went to a pastors and spouse uh, conference. Uh, well, we've, we've been a part of a cohort now for three years. Uh, three little tiny retreats each year. Two day, th- uh, three, three day, two night retreats. At the last retreat, we signed up with the, um, the Christian uh, psychologist who was a part of the group. He's one of the leaders. We signed up for uh, one of his counseling sessions. And, uh, and we, we go into the counseling session. He sits us down. And he says, so why do you want to meet with me? And we said, we don't know. We're just here for a checkup. There was no, there was no immediate need in our marriage. There was no immediate problem, actually. The, it was going, it's been going pretty well. We've been having a, a, a thriving marriage. God's blessed us. We sat down with Jim. We looked across the table at him. He says, why do you want to meet? We said, we don't know. We just want to get more counsel. We just want to get some more tips. We just want to get some more advice. Can you give us some perspective? Get counseling. Good marriages need counseling. And there are many resources for that. When I hear of couples going to counseling, I rejoice. I really do. And when I hear of couples that I already think their marriage is is pretty good and they go to counseling, 
I'm thrilled to hear that. How can we possibly speak authoritatively on marriage if our marriages are in disrepair? God needs to communicate his love to the world by showing what Christian marriage looks like. If you're coming out of a broken marriage or if you're in the midst of a hurting marriage, God can redeem your situation. He can use it for good. But you have to be humble enough to seek help and to get counsel. Get counsel as you faithfully try to honor him. Marriage is from God. It's a sacred earthly covenant. He's given it to us as a gift. And when Christ is at the center between a man and a woman, it shines in ways that all other earthly relationships pale in comparison. You've got a a comment there on your outline from Russ Moore of the um, Ethics and Religious uh, Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he writes this, If we are right about marriage, and I believe we are, many people will be disappointed in what they get, in, in getting what they want. The church must prepare for refugees from the sexual revolution. That is to say that if same-sex marriage, which is now legal, as they get what they want, if we're right, their relationships are not going to be near what they thought they would be. And they're going to start looking. They're going to start wondering, man, how come this isn't as good as I thought it would be? How come homosexual divorce rates are, are three times that of heterosexual couples? wonder why that is. How come homosexual couples committing adultery uh, are three times more likely to do so than committed heterosexual monogamous couples? I wonder why that is. They're going to start looking for answers, friends. Do you have a marriage that's worth looking at? Will you have a solution? Can you say, hey, look at this. We love each other. No, we're not, we're not perfect. But we love each other. We forgive each other. We are committed all the way. Not because we can do it by our own effort, but because we're committed to Christ. We saw what he did for us. We know we can do that for one another. Russell goes on to point out this. There are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution refugees. The first is a church that has given up on the truth of the scriptures, including on marriage and sexuality, and has nothing to say to a fallen world. The second church is the one that screams with outrage at those who disagree. They'll have nothing to say to those who are looking for new birth. I don't want to be either one of these churches. I want to have our church ready and poised, with marriages in this building that are strong and thriving so that when the refugees come, and they will, when they realize their same-sex relationships aren't what they thought they would be, and they will realize that, that they could walk into a place like this and see families and see couples and see something that's really new and really fresh and really miraculous, actually. That's possible. But it's not possible if we don't work on our marriage. Husbands, you need to work on your marriage. Wives, I know you've been working on your marriage. Be patient. Keep showing patience. Together we can get stronger. Sixth and finally, defending biblical marriage is is important, friends, but the gospel is our highest calling. The gospel is our highest calling. 
all is not lost. I, again, I experienced a range of emotions the last 48 hours. All is not lost. The, go- the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need family values in America to succeed. It doesn't. God's kingdom is not crumbling. It's not. Jesus has not been taken off the throne. He hasn't. Friends, God's kingdom is thriving. God's kingdom is flourishing. I see it in my family. I see it in my marriage. I see it when I look at my kids. I see it when I look at many of these families in this place, places where men and women and children are committed to one another in love and committed to this community of faith in love with forgiveness and grace. God's kingdom is thriving. We needn't worry what five black-robed judges say. That ruling might stand. It might get overturned. It doesn't matter. If biblical marriage um, is going to go throughout this nation, it's going to happen because of our marriages. But more importantly than that, we need to remember that we're not preaching a gospel of biblical marriage. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are preaching that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you can have new life. And people don't change until they have new life. And so let's give them the gospel first. And if they can see the gospel, and if they can hear the gospel, and if they can look at you and see the gospel, and if they can understand the gospel and hear it from you and read it and understand it and hear it preached to them and watch it being testified before them and they believe it, you just watch what God will do to change them. Stand on the authority of God's word. Rest in the knowledge that God is in control. Remember that Jesus is on the throne. His kingdom is not weakened by man-made rulings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we renew again our first priority, which is you. We know biblical marriage is important to you, God. We know the gospel is more important. So we will preach the truth that Jesus Christ has come and died and risen again. And we will believe that if we preach that message clearly and loudly and to all who will listen, we believe, God, that by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your spirit will change hearts. We believe that, Lord. We're not shaken. We're strong in you. And we have a great future ahead of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.